Hi, I'm Gianna Volpe, and thank you for listening to The Heart of the East End on WLIWFM, the show where we get to the heart of any matter at hand with folks from all walks of life on Long Island's only local NPR radio station. We stream online at WLIW.org radio and welcome your comments, questions, and collaborations of all kinds on The Heart of the East End. Live from the WLIWFM studio in Southampton, New York, I'm Gianna Volpe with local news on Long Island's only NPR radio station. Governor Kathy Hochul yesterday announced there is more than $255 million in state money available for water infrastructure projects, including $20 million set aside for septic upgrades in Suffolk County. Vera Chinise reports on Newsday.com that the state allocated $30 million to replace old and failing septic systems in targeted counties, two-thirds of which will go to Suffolk. The $20 million, which will be administered throughout Suffolk County's Reclaim Our Water Septic Improvement Plan, will help fund an estimated 2,000 new systems. The Suffolk program offers grants to fund the cost of replacing traditional septic systems with methods that remove nitrogen from wastewater, known as innovative and alternative on-site wastewater treatment systems. Quote, it's an environmental issue, it's a quality of life issue, it's a public health issue, Hochul said during a news conference at the Suffolk County Water Authority's Education Center in Hopog on Thursday. Uh, the septic systems may be underground, but they're very, very, very much on our radar, end quote. Suffolk has 360,000 aging cesspools and septic systems, environmental advocates said. To date, more than 1,100 septic systems have been installed through the Suffolk program, and roughly 3,400 homeowners have applied for grants of between ten dollars and $20,000, officials said. Suffolk County Executive Steve Ballone said having most of Suffolk's population on outdated septic systems has led to an increase in algal blooms, red and brown tides, fish kills, and other harmful effects in local waterways. The problem is funding, Ballone said. Quote, that has been the biggest constraint on the expansion of this program, which is critical to Long Island and Suffolk County, end quote. Also in state news, state regulators yesterday identified 52 unlicensed merchants who are illegally peddling marijuana in the open before New York has even issued licenses to sell cannabis. Carl Capaniel and David Meyer of the New York Post report that in cease and desist letters, the Office of Cannabis Management threatened to whack the illegal weed sellers by denying them a license to operate dispensaries legally if they don't stop the illicit activity. Landlords offering space to the weed operators also will be denied the right to rent space to cannabis lounges or dispensaries if they condone black market sales on their property, the letters threatened. Quote, Unlicensed sales undermine the legal market that is being built by introducing products that are not lab-tested and potentially threaten public health and safety, the OCM's warning letters to weed operators said. Quote, you are hereby directed to cease any and all legal activity immediately. Failure to cease such activity puts your ability to obtain a license in the legal cannabis market at substantial risk. Quote, the OCM's enforcement unit added that the unlicensed sale of cannabis is illegal and subjects merchants to substantial fines and possible criminal penalties. In Riverhead, a code amendment to eliminate 
seasonal non-resident parking permits for use at Riverhead Town Beaches, Parks and Playgrounds was the subject of a uh, public hearing before the town board this week. Denise Civiletti reports on RiverheadLocal.com that the proposal drew one comment from the public from Jamesport resident Robert Skinner, a member of the town's beach committee, who spoke in support of the amendment. Quote, we're not making any more beaches. We're not making any more parking spaces at the beaches. But there certainly are a large number of housing units on the docket right now. End quote. Board members then engaged in an extended discussion of how to solve a problem that's already addressed in the town code. And that is permits for senior citizens and handicapped residents who don't have their own vehicles and want to have someone take them to a town beach or park. The existing Riverhead Town Code provides for the issuance of a senior citizen slashed handicapped seasonal resident identification permit by the Town Recreation Department to senior citizens or handicapped residents who do not drive and need someone else to take them to the beach. The ID permit cards will grant access to any vehicle as long as the person to whom it's issued is a passenger in the car, according to that section of the Riverhead Town Code. The senior citizen or handicapped resident must produce a photo ID to the beach attendant to gain access to the parking lot. Earlier this year, the town board suspended the issuance of non-resident daily parking permits for 2022, a policy adopted in the past two years due to the COVID pandemic. And our last local news item for this hour, sadly, is about a young boy who was killed last evening when he was hit by a truck on Town Line Road in Sagaponic. Kitty Merrill reports on 27East.com that the 11-year-old was riding a bike on the west side of Town Line Road, which does not have sidewalks, when he was struck by a 2022 Ford Ranger backing into a driveway. Southampton Town Police were called to the scene yesterday at 528 P.M. and Bridgehampton Fire Department Heavy Rescue responded to extricate the child who was pinned under the vehicle. The child was rushed to Stony Brook Southampton Hospital but succumbed to his injuries. Police have identified the driver of the pickup truck. Uh, Johnny Nieto, 42, of East Hampton, stayed on the scene and has been cooperative. During the investigation, he was not charged with any crime at the scene. The child's parents also responded. This is the second fatal accident involving a bicyclist and a vehicle on the South Fork this week. On Sunday, sadly, Russell Windsor, a 70-year-old part-time Amagansett resident, was killed on the Napique stretch, cycling onto Montauk Highway. He was struck by a minivan. Reading the weather here in Southampton in honor of Southampton Village Volunteer Ambulance Chief Shane Finocchiaro, joining us right here in the WLIWFM studio as my first in-person guest since the start of the pandemic, outside of the WLIWFM family, of course. Uh, Shane will be joining us at the bottom of the hour for the Friday morning tea, underwritten by Village Overhead Doors, looking like a partly sunny Friday with a high near 77 degrees, calm wind becoming south 5 to 8 miles per hour in the afternoon. Tonight, a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms before 11, then a slight chance of showers after 2 a.m., Mostly cloudy tonight with a low around 68 degrees. Southwest wind, uh, 5 to 7 miles per hour, becoming calm after midnight. Right now it's 70 degrees. And we've got the Allison edition of The Heart uh, to get us started. I I think most of the tracks that I prepared for this morning I did not know before uh, making this for you, including the artists, a lot of new artists, including my favorite Allison, uh, that I discovered, uh, Alison Pontier, 
or I hope that's how you say her name. This is a Hollywood Forever Cemetery from um, her brand new EP, Shaking Hands with Elvis. I've got another Alison Pontier track on deck uh, that she did with Lord Huron last year called I Lied from the Long Lost Record. Alison Moore on deck after that, Jean Allison. After that, I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Alison Pontier, and you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM.
And here's that track Allison did with Lord Huron last year. This is I Lied from the Long Lost Record of 2021 on WLIWFM. Oh my gosh. Well, I wasn't lying when I said I was going to be having an in-person guest this morning. Chief Finocchiaro walking up to the WLIWFM studio right now. I'm going to go and grab him. Uh, it's the Allison playlist, Allison Moore. Right now, I'm doing fine from the Down to Believing record. 
Music from all decades and genres. Interviews with folks from all walks of life, all morning and midnight long, all because of you, the listener of WLIWFM, Long Island's only NPR radio station. Stay tuned. off the hardwood floor that cigarette burned by the bedroom well it ain't there anymore tried to call my mama i forgot that she's gone guess i let the last thing you said keep running through my head too long through my head too long i just want to let you know Sleeping on the floor If you want your old guitar It's sitting out on the porch I just want to let you know Doing a little more than fine here in the WLIWFM studio. We have our first in-person guest here in the studio since the start of the pandemic. We did a couple interviews with folks from within the WLIWFM family, but this is our first, first time. Outsider. Yes! So it's it's Chief Shane Finocaro of the Southampton Village Volunteer Ambulance Corps. Welcome to WLIWFM. Thanks for having me. And welcome to Fatherhood. Is that your first? Yes, that's my first. Okay, so and so she's three months now. Uh, tomorrow will be three months. Oh my goodness! So how Big is day all around? Yeah. So so tell us a little bit. Let's start there with uh, becoming a dad. 
Uh, it was it was fun. It's rewarding. Yeah, it's been three months, but no rewarding, sleep. To say the least. Uh, I get sleep. I won't. Oh, if my wife hears me say I don't get sleep, she'll. Oh my gosh. She'll call me out. Yeah, but I, I get some sleep. I she got, takes care of her. So. Yeah, I'm lucky. I got. I got. I'm lucky too because because I work in the morning. I somehow finagled yeah, that offset that there. he does the the night shift, and that is uh, my my saving grace. Yeah, if she stayed up late, it'd be good for me because I'm up late. Okay. And she, you know, we try and put her to bed early, so yeah, she handles that's important. that. What's her name? I get sleep. Allie. Allie, that's crazy because we are playing the. Uh, this is the Allison edition of the uh, the show, so we're doing all songs by people with Allison in Allison. the name. Yeah, Allie's the full. Is, is the full name. Full name. That's okay. Nice and Allie, simple. Allison the is the name. Allie's the, the nickname of, of the Allisons. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about what you're here about, which is the beautiful brand new space for SVVA. This is something we've been talking about since uh, before the pandemic yeah, hit. Yeah. It's a long time coming. Uh, really about uh, probably over 10 years, really. In 2009, uh, the discussion started to be had. Um, and they were looking into options, started to see other facilities. Um, and we settled on a design. We went out for bond, uh, got the approval. And then uh, from there, it's just a process to get everything approved and uh, built. Yeah. Um, and we got it built and we moved in in uh, June of or June or July of 2020. Yeah. So, so it's been two years, but a crazy two years to I say re- the Yeah, least. I remember when you guys were, were moving in and you used the word settle, but... You definitely didn't settle, right? Yeah. When you came no, to this we, new we building, moved, can you uh, talk a little it was bit? A dynamic process. So uh, we were in a small building. We really outgrew it, which was obviously part of the need for a new building. Um, and then we got hit with the pandemic, and we were op- operating under small quarters. So um, we survived it. And then uh, they said, building's ready. Here are the keys. Come move in. So we quickly moved everything, um, and we got into place. And it's been great ever since, but it was uh, a lot going on at the time. Thank you, by the way, to you and all yeah, of no, the, we, our we emergency responders. Uh, that's why we do it. It's it's rewarding. It's a great great to be part of the family. Everyone is uh, it's a, you know it's a friendship family and a brotherhood, sisterhood, and it's rewarding. And what a, and what a um, tough time too. So it, it's one of these moments where you really um, you know the need for emergency response sort of shines because I mean, uh, can you talk a little bit about I imagine you had a lot more calls than ever uh, uh, these it past was couple of years. Different types of calls. I mean, we had uh, policies and protocols that changed due to the pandemic, where we actually were not treating people differently, but starting it was like a pandemic protocol. So if people were okay, the hospitals were so overloaded, we actually were shifting our type of care or not transporting. So it was, it was a different uh, type of uh, call volume. It was actually by numbers we had less. I think it huh? might have stemmed from the fact that people. A, we're afraid to go to the hospital, you know, uh, not afraid, but maybe there was a barrier there yeah. due to the hospital being a place of, you know, COVID really. Right. Um, so I think people were afraid on some minor stuff to go to the hospital. They might have used utilized the, uh, you know, the uh, walk-in care centers a little more for things that were not uh, urgent. Yeah. We obviously did have full-blown, you know, a lot of medical emergencies, but by numbers, uh, 2020 was uh, a less year. Doesn't yeah, mean that's that really were, interesting. There were um, still obviously sick patients, and oh, I think yeah. it was just a, a healthcare, um, just like anomaly, just the way that people handle things. I think that you know, at one point the hospitals couldn't really handle more; they were just so burdened with um, between their staffing and what they got. 
Um, and some so. doctors just sitting there wringing their hands, worrying about patients who yeah. have situations going on, but you know, uh, surgeries were kind of put on the yeah, back burner. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough decisions to be made all around. It's crazy. Um, Let's, definitely. So we'll return to something more fun. Let's talk about the building itself. Yeah. Now, the, one of the things I remember, because I remember we had a bunch of uh, folks from SVVA in to talk about it. And the one thing that sticks out in my mind was that there was better, uh, like, workout facilities yeah, in so we, building. Yeah, um, so we had a, a donor underwrite um, most of our uh, fitness center. So we have a, it's a small gym. Yeah. Um, so it's an inclusive area where our members can either work out, you know, after a call or if they're on a duty crew from six to six during that. Um, and we have showers so they can, you know, shower and be ready for call. Um, but it's, it's a real nice inclusive facility. You can really show up there. You can cook dinner, um, work out, go to bed in a nice bed. Uh, we have a bunk room. Uh, with a bunch of beds, so it's it's really an inclusive place where people can come, um, and they can spend all day there or all night waiting to run a run an alarm. Fantastic! So it's uh, it's great. You know, we used to have a um, the option to use like the SYS. It was another gym before okay, that prior. Okay, right. Um, so now we have the ability to in house, uh, which is good because yeah. people can be there and be using the the facility and also be around for a call. So, so it kind of keeps us in house. Speaking of being there. Tomorrow, the public invited to be there. Maybe not use the the equipment. Yeah, not. But... Yeah, they, we'll get to see it. <laughs> they can see. Like me, I, I look at it. I don't use it, unfortunately. <laughs> That's okay. New dad, you got a lot going on, especially being the chief. Yeah. So, tell me a little bit about what does the chief do? Uh we have to answer to everything. Mm -hmm. uh, besides running EMS alarms, we handle um, obviously our department and administration. Um, disciplinary stuff, and we handle through the village. We're a department of the village, so we handle uh, purchasing uh, anything that goes through the village. You know, our budgets, we prepare the budget. Right. Uh, we have a council, which is uh, like an executive board in the ambulance, which consists of our chiefs and um, secretary and treasurer. So we in house have our own council that handles, um, you know, the executive side of stuff. And then uh, the chiefs are in charge of operations. So there's a call. Uh, you know, we resume command. You talk uh, to the reporters. If yeah, we, yeah, hopefully we, we don't say anything too bad. But no. uh, a fire department handles a lot of typically the, any uh, public information stuff. Oh. You, a lot of the events, you know, medically okay. where we, you know, we can't disclose a lot of stuff. Well, of course not. Um, so we, not much for us to say, which is right. a good thing. Um, but yeah, any large scale stuff, usually, you know, police and fire would be the you're point busy, of contact. You're taking but, uh, care of business, making sure the people get to hospitals yeah, if they yeah, need to. Yeah, we kind of just are, are there making sure everything runs smoothly. Yeah. We don't do all the work. Certainly our members do uh, the work, but we're just there to orchestrate. It's important, important stuff. All right, so when can people come tomorrow? Tell us everything. Uh, tomorrow's 11 to 3 at okay. 165 Windmill Lane, our headquarters next to uh, the police station. Um, it's, we'll, we'll have food, we'll have lunch style food, uh, some grilling stuff and then, uh, some stuff more up my alley, uh, cotton candy, Ooh. snow cones, popcorn. Wow. Uh, yeah. Not wow. just for the kids, for everyone. Yeah. Good. Uh, so that we'll have that food, beverages, uh, we'll have, uh, some kid toys, inflatable stuff, bouncy house and, uh, some lawn games and oh, stuff. So really a, an inclusive family event. Uh, you know, if the parents want to walk around tour the building, uh, while the kids play outside, 
uh, we welcome that. But we welcome everyone, our, our donors that uh, contributed to building. You know, we fundraised uh, and campaigned for uh, to furnish the building, everything inside of it. We uh, we fundraised for, and our, we had gracious donors that uh, really supported us, and we we were able to fill the building with uh, the necessities. So it's a time for the donors to come look at the building, the public to see what we do. Um, and maybe fill out an application and join. We'll yes. Have a membership drive. Yes, please. You know, we're not about calls to action, but I have no problem saying, you know, if you can uh, and, you know, you would like to uh, get involved more in your community, join the Village Volunteer Ambulance Yeah, Corps. there'll be a table there for membership and they'll go over what what it entails and the uh, the perks of it and if it's not for you, that's fine too. It's really this is really what does a time it entail? For, let's let's give the uh, people a little a little taste. How much time commitment, for example? There's, there's training up front involved okay. uh, to learn the ambulance and um, to learn you know the process and procedures. And then uh, we ask a member to be either become a driver, which entails just going out for uh, you know taking a driving course and um, going on calls and, pre- and getting precepted learning to drive. And then uh, we also ask members if they have the time to take an EMT class. Uh, which has grown in hours since I took it. I couldn't tell you the solid number of hours, but uh, it's it's, it's an entailed it's class. It's good, though. You know, if you're, if you're taking the time to take an EMT course, you're also lear- learning invaluable skills that sort of— And we host it. That's fantastic. Because of the new building. Yes. All right. So, and before, before, <clears throat> we, before I let you go and we remind folks that the open house is tomorrow from 11 to 3, lots of exciting stuff, and you can check— out the building itself. Um, I want to know about how has it been being so close to the village police department? Has it helped as far as uh, working together on calls? Yeah, we have a lot of um, members who actually are police officers or uh, in either in some aspect associated with their dispatchers. Fantastic. Um, so we have a lot of cross-trained members also with the fire department as well, myself. Um, so we, we've always had a, a really strong relationship and um, I think it's important for the people of the community to know that, that we've always, we work so well together between the departments. I love and that. that's why the, the level of care across all the uh, departments is so high and the level of service is so professional. Uh, we really work hand in hand with each other. There's, there's, if there's an, ever any problem, you know, a problem it gets worked out, which doesn't happen, there's no problems. But um, we, we work with each other really well and now we're, we're neighbors. So yeah. the fire department's right down the road. Uh, but we we were never next to anyone. We we're you know next to the church, closer to the hospital, but right. we're uh, closer than anyone else. I mean, you know, Montauk comes all the way out here, so uh, for us, we're you know we're close. Lot, yeah. We we moved away, but we we are close. This is this is that's such a fantastic thing to know, and I hope that if it's not the same in other communities, that it becomes more like that. That people uh, become cross trained and uh, you know close. Any uh, gaps between? Yeah, we're we're, I think that's, we're really one. The emergency services, is, we like to treat it as one. We do different jobs, but at the end of the day, we all uh, got each other's back, and we're we're friends outside of it. We're friends during it, and we we all are. Uh, we're lucky to have each other, and it's it show it reflects upon the community and um, the you know all the people around here, the local people. Um, it, it's great. I love being a part of it. Shane Finicaro, everyone, chief of the Southampton Village Volunteer Ambulance Corps. I'm Gianna Volpe. This was the um, it was the Friday morning tea, underwritten by Village Overhead Doors. Check out the new space.
tomorrow. What's the, what's the exact address? On one one sixty five Winoli. Eleven to three, everyone. To we three. will be back. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, thank you for coming in. We've got lots more. If you want to come into the studio, if you have a guest suggestion or a an idea for a segment, six three one five nine one seven zero zero six. I'll be right back. Let's play uh, Charlie from Allison Crutchfield's Tourist in This Town record, I think. Or we could, you know, not. It doesn't look like it's clicking. I guess I can, like, look look something up. How about Luther Allison? I can do that. Luther Allison. I think it's chills and thrills. Lots of chills and thrills tomorrow, 11 to 3, right here in Southampton Village. I'm Jenna Volpe. This is Luther Allison and you, whoever you are out there. Ooh, what's playing? Oh, it is Luther Allison. It says bad news is coming, but there's no bad news coming here on WLIWFM. It's all good, and it's all morning and midnight long on Long Island's only NPR radio station. WLIWFM.
So th- Chills and Thrills is actually a Bernard Allison track. And I'm going to play that next. That was Luther Allison's um, title track of his 1973 record, Bad News Is Coming. We do have news coming at the top of the hour, the next NPR news break. Lots of music between now and then. It's the Allison edition of The Heart, music from all decades and genres, interviews with folks from all walks of life, all morning and midnight long on Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM.
All right, I mentioned that Alison Crutchfield track Charlie from Tourist in This Town, so I'm going to play it now. Nice one-decade jump forward. I'm Jan sensation in your sleep tonight. We sleep in the same bed at the opposite times. And Charlie, I call out your name, but I still call you darling in my mind. I was in Porto this time last week, drinking champagne sangria on the rocky beach. And I was angry with you, but I still wondered if you missed me. From Allison Crutchfield to Allison Pierce, staying in 2017 for this next one, 10 minutes before the NPR news break at the top of the hour. This is To the Grave from the Year of the Rabbit record here on the Heart of the East End on WLIWFM NPR Radio.
From Allison Pierce to Allison Russell, it's the Allison edition of the Heart of the East End here on Long Island's only NPR radio station, Nightflyer, from the 2021 record Outside Child on Long Island's only NPR radio station. Yeah. 
Allison Russell on WLIWFM. I came so close to playing a joke track into the NPR news break. Uh, a single called The Hamptons made me do it by an artist called Allison. It is the Allison edition. Oh my gosh, I think I'm going to do it. Oh no. All right, listeners, forgive me and try to find the humor in it. The NPR news break is just a minute and a half away. So hold on. If you don't like it, um, chances are you won't. I have mixed feelings. Very mixed. All right. This is the Hamptons made me do it from Allison. It is the Allison edition of The Heart After All. Local news update coming up in five minutes. Sorry. I can't even. All right. Well, anyway, uh, the NPR news break is just ahead. The local news update after that. And then we will be going out to Montauk when we talk with Michael Wolf for the Hot Sounds segment underwritten by Sag Harbor Cinema here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station. W-L-I-W-F-M, NPR Radio. With Long Island local news, I'm Gianna Volpe on W-L-I-W-F-M. Alan Caluyeros and his six-figure Ferrari, Joseph Bruno and a no-good racehorse named Christie's Night Out, Benjamin Weiser in the New York Times reports that Albany has spawned myriad tales of corruption over the past decade, as figure after figure from the Speaker of the Assembly to the Leader of the State Senate has been convicted in trials focused on abuse of the public trust. Federal prosecutors in Manhattan have doggedly pursued allegations of corruption in the Capitol, laying bare a culture of secrecy and self-dealing. But in key rulings in the past dozen years, the U.S. Supreme Court has narrowed the law governing corruption, resulting in the overturning of the convictions of at least three prominent former New York lawmakers. And with the court's announcement June 30th that it would review the high-profile 2018 convictions of two men closely identified with former Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration, legal experts say the justices may be ready to further limit what, constitu what constitutes graft and therefore what's illegal in New York's capital. Quote, court wants to prevent the criminalization of what it considers normal politics. That's Daniel C. Richmond, a criminal law professor at Columbia Law School and former federal prosecutor. But it narrow, uh, but its narrow conception of what should be a federal crime often seems to leave out everything except the sale of one's office for a sack of cash, end quote. The possibility that the latest New York verdicts are now imperiled has left veteran observers of Albany so famed for malfeasance that it has an online museum devoted to it all the more discouraged, particularly in the face of often weak efforts by New York lawmakers and governors to root out lawlessness and corruption. Quote, between loophole riddled 
state law any restricted ability of federal prosecutors to police corruption, you're going to end up with uh, even more of an ethical Wild West than it used to be. That's Blair Horner, the executive director of the New York Public Interest Research Group, a good government organization. And in a beautifully localized national story, two Long Islanders, a Port Washington nurse who was the first American to receive the COVID-19 vaccine outside clinical trials, and a Southampton priest who has counseled U.S. presidents over the past four decades, were awarded the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, by President Joe Biden yesterday. Laura Figueroa Hernandez reports on Newsday.com that Sandra Lindsay, 53, a critical care nurse at Northwell Health's Long Island Jewish Medical Center in New Hyde Park, received her first dose of the vaccine on December 14, 2020, when questions about the safety of the new vaccine were common. Father Alexander Karlutsis, 76, pastor of the Dormition of the Virgin Mary Greek Orthodox Church of the Hamptons, uh, who has played a role in the building of the chapel at the presidential retreat at Camp David, Maryland. Both were among 17 Americans honored at a White House ceremony on Thursday. This is America, Biden said, pointing to the recipients. Speaking in the White House East Room, Biden described Father Karlutsis as a trusted dear friend and praised his half-century of service to the Greek Orthodox Church in the U.S., Biden called him one of the church's most dedicated leaders. Father Alex, as he's known around here, immigrated from Greece as a child. He tells Newsday, quote, this is a celebration of America because you can come over here from the divided places of the world, come to the United States of America, and we're Americans. I think of my mom and dad, the American dream, and all the people along the way. I serve my community, and my community raised me up. And I'm not only talking about the Greek Orthodox Church, but the community of Long Island, end quote. Father Alex has helped raise millions of dollars in funding for the St. Nicholas National Shrine at the World Trade Center site in Manhattan. Carlutzis said he has known Joe Biden for at least 40 years and once accompanied him on a trip to Greece to meet with Greek Orthodox leaders. And he said he grieved with Biden after the death of the president's son, Beau, of brain cancer in 2015. We both went through tragedies, Carlutz has said. So when you go through those experiences of loss, you always look for something greater. Reading the weather in Montauk in honor of our next guest, uh, 27, uh, July 17th, Hampton's Jazz Fest performance at Gosman's Dock. Michael Wolf joins us for the Hot Sound segment, underwritten by Sag Harbor Cinema at the bottom of the hour. Looking like a mostly sunny uh, Friday in Montauk with a high near 77 degrees, calm wind becoming south 5 to 8 miles per hour in the afternoon. Tonight, a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms before 11 p.m., then a slight chance of showers after 2 a.m., mostly cloudy tonight with a low around 68 degrees southwest wind 3 to 8 miles per hour. Right now, it's 72 degrees. I've got Allison Krause's Down to the River to Pray. But first, Jean Allison's I'm a Fool for Wanting You from 1959 here on the Heart of the East End. Playing music from all decades and genres, interviewing folks from all walks of life, all morning and midnight long on Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM. I am a fool. 
That's exactly how I feel when I think about our listeners here on Long Island's only NPR radio station. Just in honor of Alison Krauss spelling her name with one L, I've got Alison from Elvis Costello from 1977. Then I'm going to play uh, all jazz right up to Michael Wolf's interview with us at around 1025 here on Long Island's only NPR radio station. I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Elvis Costello. And you, you're awesome.
understand that you were not impressed. But I heard you let that little friend of mine take off your party dress. I'm not gonna get too sentimental like those other sticker valentines. Cause I don't know if you are loving somebody. I only know it isn't mine. Allison, I know this world is killing you. Oh, Allison, my aim is true. See, you got a husband now. Do you leave your pretty fingers lying in the wedding cake? You used to hold him right in your hand. I bet it took all he could take. Sometimes I wish that I could stop you from talking when I hear the silly things that you say. Tucking Ben Ellison's magic number from the layers of the city record in our back pocket, just in case we need it, leading up to our hot sound segment underwritten by Sac Harbor Cinema. Our guest um, is going to be Michael Wolf, who's actually playing with Ben Ellison out at Gosman's Dock on the 17th. I'm going to play Mose Allison's Parchment Farm, a track lifted right from, on that note, Michael Wolf's brand new book, his memoir, great read, uh, definitely, definitely worth reading. We'll be talking about it with him in just a few moments. I'm Gianna Volpe. This is the one and only Moose Allison. You, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only NPR radio station, WLIWFM, 88.3 on the FM dial throughout eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut, 96.9 in central and western Suffolk and the corresponding sections of Connecticut. Of course, streaming online to wherever you are at WLIWFM.org. We'll be back.
sitting over here on parchment farm. Well, I'm sitting over here on parchment farm. Well, I'm sitting over here on parchment farm, and I ain't never done no man no harm. Cotton in eleven foot sack. Well, I'm putting that cotton in eleven foot sack. Well, I'm putting that cotton in eleven foot sack with a twelve gauge shotgun at my back. Sitting over here on number nine. I'm sitting over here on number nine. Well, I'm sitting over here on number nine, and all I did was drink my wine. Mose Allison's Parchment Farm on WLIWFM, leading us right into the man himself, Michael Wolf Allison, on Long Island's only NPR radio station. Michael joins us in just a few moments here on WLIWFM.
That's the Michael Wolf Trio on WLIWFM. Michael Wolf Quartet will be playing at Gosman's Dock on July 17th. This is the Hot Sounds segment, underwritten by Sag Harbor Cinema. Honored to have Michael Wolf himself on the line with us. Good morning, Michael. Good morning to you. So glad to be here. So excited to talk Fun about to what? Say that again. So, so Say that again. Oh, I thought I thought I heard you say something. So I'm excited about talking. Oh about... yeah, I was just going so to so fun to hear a parchment farm since I wrote about that in my book. And yes. Go to Ben Allison. You so, know, Allison. Yeah, that was great. Tell tell yeah. me a little bit about about that moment in your book. I mean, for first of all, uh, you've been you've lived in in so many parts of the country and and visited, but this was a very New York memoir when it comes to uh, how you approach it, your voice in in the text. So very fun to read. Can you talk a little bit about Parchment Farm? Well, yeah, I uh, when I was little, I lived in the South. My father was from Mississippi. My mom was from New Orleans. And we lived in New Orleans and then in Memphis. So we used to drive from Memphis to Indianola, Mississippi to visit my grandparents, my dad's parents. And we'd always drive by Parchment Farm. And I'd look out the window and I'd see all these guys out there picking cotton, put them into these sacks. And then they had these scary guys on horseback with guns that were like the trustees. So I just uh, remember asking my father about it because I was, you know, I was maybe six years old or five years old or whatever. And he explained, you know, that was a prison and, you know, don't do anything illegal. Don't end up in that place. Right, right. So it was an never left me. It was an image that never left me. And 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 it was a great image. You know, there's a lot of great um, discussion about racism and about uh, things when segregation was still around. Um, very interesting, your perspective. And, and that image is one of them because you noticed that the trustees who were also prisoners were all white while the people picking cotton were all black. Right. And that, you know, even though I was a young kid and, you know, when I was really little, I mean, uh, you know, growing up in the South, I mean, yeah, I just kind of accepted the, the way it was. I didn't think about race or, you know, we didn't, my family was, you know, uh, kind of liberal and Jewish and, you know, I, I didn't think about it, but I would notice these weird things when I was growing up. And I remember, I, I distinctly remember that thing. So as I grew up, and I started becoming more, I saw that in the South, this is in the 50s, you know, I was born in 1952, so this would have been in the late 50s. And I remember seeing that, uh, that racism was just a part of the whole system. It wasn't like some person hating black people or this or that. It was just, as they say, it was, it was a system of, of racism. It was a system of class, you know, and it was really like India, was like black people were uh, uh, a lower class than white people there. And I didn't know where Jewish people fit in. I mean, in a way, I think Jewish people, when they, all my relatives came over from from Europe, from Russia to escape the conscription into the Russian army, and they came over in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And I think, it, of course, they experienced a lot of racism against them or anti-Semitism. But they just seemed to like ease right into the South and I guess be glad they were white and then they were not, uh, it seemed to me, not really aware of the whole situation or how it should, how it really, in my mind, should be. It was just something in me uh, that just couldn't, couldn't stand it. 
Let's talk a little bit more about, uh, like, round out um, your perspective, because I think that um, having Tourette's is one of the one another uh, facet of your personality that I think really uh, provided you with more of like a wider perspective about uh, being an other and and how labels and how others can consider uh, others in society. Um, first of all, thank you for for writing this memoir. I learned so much, and I and I'm really uh, grateful for the look inside because I, I I'm insatiably curious. How do you think being categorized as an other affected your view of labels and and other people being considered lesser than or outside the mainstream? Well, I definitely still have Tourette's syndrome, which if people don't know, it's, you know, you make noises, you do these physical movements, ticks, among other things. And so people can see it. But well, I never got diagnosed with Tourette's until I was in my late 30s, maybe middle 30s, but really by a doctor in my late 30s, late 40s. So I always felt there was something wrong with me, you know? I just thought that I had a lot of shame and embarrassment, but I couldn't. I couldn't be cool. I couldn't control that I had these movements and made these noises. So I definitely felt um, separate from other people in that way. And didn't know anybody else who was like me. Everybody, you know, from my outside looking in, everybody seemed to have it great and they, they look normal. So I think it made me always identify with, uh, uh, you know, uh, the underdog, really. And, uh, and and that's that was looking back on that course, being older and having a different perspective now. But if I think about how I was and feeling isolated in a way, my family loved me, and I was able to have friends. Uh, why I really got into music, and particularly jazz, was I found it was a subculture that seemed to accept me, regardless of how I behaved or my sounds or whatever, as long as I could play. So I found this culture, and it was. Uh, the bands that I played with were primarily black people, African-American people, and they accepted me. So then I'm looking at the white people and, you know, greater family and their racism. Then I'm looking at my heroes and peers are, and there were black people. So I think that with the Tourette syndrome, it just made me have a, uh, an openness to being with anybody and loving anybody and not thinking about people being different, certainly not by the, by the way they look, because I knew I didn't look like everybody else. Right. You know, and and it's interesting because when you would play, uh, there wasn't, I guess, because you had to focus all of your attention on what you were doing, there wasn't as much room uh, for some of those things. Let's touch briefly on, um, how do I say it, quadrilalia and how you handled uh, that aspect of Tourette's in case it's of any benefit. So, so, uh, so thing, go ahead. There's, this, there's, you know, the Tourette's has a lot of different uh, expressions in people, and everybody doesn't have the same one. And there's a thing called coprolalia, when people, it's the one that gets the most attention, it's the most right. dramatic. So if there's a TV show about Tourette's, some person's going to be swearing uncontrollably. Uh, that's basically it, Selling, saying inappropriate. You know, things are just popping out of their mouth that they can't control. And it's, you know, that's similar to doing movements that you can't control. In other words, when you, when you do a movement, 
from Tourette's or a tick. It's it's a movement you would normally do. You just can't stop doing it. And the same with operalia. It's words that everybody knows. You're not making up a language or speaking in tongues. But there's just certain words you can't say. Well, I didn't have coprolalia in terms of uh, making the noise. But what I found out was, again, you know, I was kind of discovering myself as I was growing up. I learned to type when I was quite young, you know, maybe junior high school or ninth grade or something. I became a really good typist. And I found that in my mind, I would type all these swear words instead of saying them out loud. It was almost like a session that, you know, if I these words would just come to my mind and I would type them. I would imagine it was like playing the piano. You know, I can imagine playing the piano. And even though I'm not moving my fingers, I can feel what it feels like. Well, it was the same with typing. I could feel in my mind and I still can what, what it feels like to type these words. And I would type them. And then I would first in my mind, the letters and the typewriter from the left hand to the right hand and do it backwards, a sort of mirror image thing. So that's, I don't know what you would call that. I've never, I don't either. It's it's fantastic, and I thought it was so cool. It's like compulsive creation. Can you talk about tasting words? It reminded me a little bit of like synesthesia when 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 certain words yeah. have color or or taste or texture to them. Right. Well, you know, it's funny. I had a again when you're growing up, you don't know what other people do or don't do. So right. I always, time I was a little boy, had. Uh, colors uh, connected to certain things. So days of the week had colors, months of the year numbers, and piano notes. And each note uh, to me has a different color. And when we play harmony, when we play sounds in music, we talk about color. Just color, you know. It's it's a way to express the sound playing. And uh, uh, not that it always related, but I always had color that way. But there's one note an F sharp or an enharmonic G flat that wasn't, it's a color for me, but it's also a taste in my mouth, almost a taste of like mole or dusty a chocolate taste. Man, don't ask me where that's from. You know, as I've gotten into the world of Tourette syndrome and neurology and learned stuff, there are people that have these kind of sensual, you know, ways that they, they observe things or they so have things. Cool. So, Anyway, that's how, that's how I roll. If I hear that certain note, uh, I'm going to get a taste in my mouth. Oh, I love it. So the, the thing that, the thing I love most about On That Note is for anyone out there, if you have, say, Tourette's or synesthesia, this is proof in the pudding that it is cool. So uh, anyone out there who feels any other way, I hope they do pick up your book. Um, you know, I think this ties in a bit with the pie theory of improvisation. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what it means? Because I sure. think it's it's sort of a, a dummy's way of understanding how to riff uh, with other musicians. Well, yeah. You know, when I was playing with Cannibal Adderley, I was his last pianist. I was 22 years old. This was in 1955. And uh, we were playing. And uh, we were playing at a club in Philadelphia called Just Jazz, a really cool club. And all of a sudden... You know, uh, I was. Uh, this wasn't the first band I'd played with. I'd played with Cal Jader and Ayrton Morera, and you know, been a musician for a while. But all of a sudden, when you're a jazz pianist and you're in a band, your whole of your playing is improvised. Whether I'm playing a solo, which means all the focus is on me, or whether I'm listening to other people play and I'm accompanying them, 
Uh, you know, we have a structure, a structure and a structure of the song that it goes 16 measures or, you know, however it goes around and around. But what you play is really coming from you. And it's like figuring out when you're an accompanist, you know, or uh, how do I, how do I, what do I play? How do I play? And one night uh, I had this gestalt where I could see above me a big round circle and while the players were playing, whether it was bass and drums or trumpet or saxophone, I could see that each was taking up a certain amount of space in the circle. And then it sort of dawned on me that when I play, I shouldn't take up anybody else's piece of the pie. I got to just play where there's a space for me to play. And so that's sort of my pie theory of improvisation. It's this and, beautiful uh, pie. Yeah. And if there's if there's nothing left, then... You just let it be that way because you got to make sure that the pie is nice and full, not overflowing. Super cool. Uh, it's, yeah. uh, let's talk a little bit more about playing with Cal and, and what it means to leave space in music. I mean, in art, uh, white space is, is, is a really important uh, element that, that sometimes uh, it takes time to uh, sort of develop that, to see uh, where nothing is also beautiful and important. Uh, can you talk a little bit about learning that lesson? Yeah, when I was very young, I, I went on the road with this guy, great jazz violinist, Cal Jader, J-A-D-E-R, really interesting spelling. And, uh, you know, I had finished two years of college at UC Berkeley and uh, UCLA and then UC Berkeley. And I was, you know, doing a music major. This was in... 1970 and 71, yeah, it was, yeah, I had to just, there was one jazz in Boston, Berkeley School of Music. So I was just doing classical music. And uh, I sat in with Cal Jader and his job. And I was really young. I was just learning to play. And I, every on every song, I wasn't thinking about a piece of the pie then. I was just thinking about, I want to play everything I know and just play, play, play. You know, I just had a lot of energy. Uh, Cal would say, breathe breathe, Mike, just breathe. And I started to learn that he meant, I think it, later as I got that pie theory of, uh, you know, space is what he was telling me. In other words, just just breathe, just leave a lot of space. You know, it, it is, if you leave space for something, then when the sound comes, it's put in, in a more intense relief, you know. If you're just playing all the time, nothing means too much. It can just sort of... Uh, be meaningless but if you wait and then you play something really specific it's much more meaningful so that was a great lesson that i had to continue learning over and over and over and i still do because i like to play i'm at the piano and, you know i got all 88 notes uh, and i got 10 fingers and you know i want to play but i have to learn to take a breath you know when when you're playing the piano you can play over and over. go 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 you never have to rest whereas if you're playing a horn you've got to take a breath or you're singing right you have to stop and take a breath that's phrasing it so i have had to learn you know, over the years to make sure to take a breath that's why sometimes i sing along with what i'm playing and then when it's time to take a breath it's time to stop that line you know or that that idea letting the piano breathe all right so uh, we're definitely going to talk about about your son alex and and left out but first, since you mentioned the classical uh, thing, let's talk a little bit about your father and how he um, affected or or sort of um, inspired your musicianship. 
and how you started. Because at first, he wanted you to what learn classical first, right? Yeah, I mean, he loved jazz. He wasn't really a classical fan. He loved, I mean, not, he didn't dislike it, but he had just grown up in Mississippi. And he grew up in the same town with these three great blues players, Albert King, B.B. King, and Muddy Waters. They were all from Indianola, right. Mississippi, happened to be. So, uh, again, there was a racism, but you know, he he was, he loved the music, so he'd seek out the music. You know, that's that was important to him. And uh, so uh, when I was a kid, we got this piano when I was four, and he had perfect pitch, and he could just sit and play little tunes on the piano. He wasn't a great pitch, but he played those tunes, and he would play all these records for me that he loved, to Ray Charles and Count Basie and, you know, uh, people like that, George Shearing, Oscar Peterson. He loved all those people. So he, we would play it, and he would talk to me about it and explain what was happening. This piece is starting here. Here's the melody. Now it's going to another section. You know, he really kind of analyzed it for me, even though he wasn't a trained musician by any means. So when I decided I wanted to be a jazz musician, he said, okay, but, you know, this was the thinking in the day since there wasn't really any jazz education. He said, well, you got to take classical lessons at least until you're 12, then you'll learn the instrument and you'll learn, you know, basic music theory, and then you can do jazz. So I said, okay. So that's what I did. I mean, I fought it all the way and, I finally got a great teacher when I was in the seventh grade. I guess I was uh, 12 years old. This old lady, because we'd moved to Berkeley, California when I was nine. Mrs. Bardell, she said, you know, she saw what was happening with me. So she said, this is what we're going to do every week. We're going to do, you're going to do one of your own compositions. You're going to do one Beatles oh, tune. cool. And then you're going to do music that I wanted to do. So she kind of made a deal with me, and it really worked. I love uh, that. All right. Well, folks, the book is called On That Note. The Michael Wolf uh, Quartet will be out here on the 17th at Gosman's Dock. Definitely uh, consider checking that out. Before I let you go, you want to tell us a little bit about Left Out, Michael? Oh, yeah. Left Out is a song I wrote. Left Out because of my left hand. I was just trying some different sounds in my left hand, and I wrote this piece, Left Out. And actually, my son, Alex, who's uh, uh, 24 years old, is a great musician. He's really known as, as a movie actor. And he's been in, you know, all these great movies, Hereditary, and he's just a lot of movies. He's in all the Jumanji movies. Uh, he and his brother, Nat, his brother, Nat, also is a great actor. Wait, was, he the, was he the boy? Was he the boy in Hereditary? Like yeah, the, the son? The all right, that, yeah. I got to tell you. That is the last scary movie that actually scared me. Have you seen it? Of course. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, kudos. Uh, He got into it. Uh, Yeah, he's a great actor. Yeah, he is. And uh, he's also a a director. He's he's got a movie out on Amazon called uh, The Cat in the Moon that he wrote, directed, and starred in. And then he's getting ready to direct a movie in the fall that he wrote, and it's going to star in also. He's going to do that in Europe. But, um, so, uh, and then my son, Nat, is, uh, uh, you know, on a million TV shows and movies. So, you know, they're just really, really busy guys. But Alex was in town in New York, because I rarely see these guys because they're so busy. They're 20, Nat's 27, Alex is 24. And Nat basically lives in L.A., and Alex, you know, they're just all over working, because when you do a movie or a TV show, you go to 
and it could be anywhere in the world. So, so passionate, Europe, yeah, passionate, just like their dad. I love it. All right, so, so they are. And anyway, I was just going to say, Alex was at home. And he just started playing drums with me. I wrote, and I just turned on my voice memo, and we recorded it. And then I wanted to put a special tune on the with the book, you know, so people could just go and have a a code that they could, you know, just put their phone on and listen to this thing. And then I uh, recorded that tune in the studio with musicians. But I really liked what Alex and I had done talking about it, and it's just very intimate. So I just put that out and put that on. Michael and Alex Wolf left out right here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. I'm Gianna Volpe. That was Michael Wolf. This is Michael and Alex Wolf. And you, whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM, the Hot Sound segment, underwritten by Sag Harbor Cinema.
father and son duo Michael and Alex Wolf on WLIWFM leading you into the NPR news break with uh, some blues in honor of Michael. This is Royal Southern Brotherhood's Left My Heart in Memphis. Ishman Bracey's Left Alone Blues leading you into the NPR news break. And the end of this edition of The Heart, I'm Gianna Volpe, the humble host of the Morning and Midnight Show here on Long Island's only NPR radio station. And from the bottom of the heart of the East End, thank you for listening. Can I just give a shout to our guest this morning, Shane Pinacaro of the Southampton Village Volunteer Ambulance Corps. Again, their open house is tomorrow from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Fun for the whole family. And Michael Wolf performing at Gosman's Dock on July 17th 
I'm Gianna Volpe. This is Ishman Bracey. Deep bow to village overhead doors and Sag Harbor Cinema for underwriting, as well as all of you out there for supporting us at WLIWFM.org. I said a woman I'm loving, Got to learn how 